You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works number 266, the first of three volumes, Esoteric Lessons. This is from 1904 to 1909 by Rudolf Steiner, uh, translated by James H. Hines. And this is the last section of the book, beginning with Esoteric Lesson given in Munich on August 30th, 1909. Record A is a manuscript from Camilla Vandry. Record B notes from the collection of Elizabeth Freda. Supplementary paragraph from Ida Noch, drawings, manuscript from Anonymous, and Nelly Lichtenberg. Record A. After Parsifal had stood before Titterell in solitude, and had had the experience of which we spoke, a fundamental feeling appeared in him, an intimate, profound feeling of shame. This feeling completely permeated him, He had gone through catharsis and thought he was now so good and pure that he could be taken up into, could join, the followers of the Master of Masters, Christ. And, with this feeling of shame, he remembered the words of Christ, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Mark 10.18, Luke 18.19 and he now knew how profoundly imperfect he still was, and how much he still had to take up in his striving toward the good, how much he still lacked in order to be good. And a second feeling, a feeling of fear, overcame him. He thought he had long since overcome it. It was also a different feeling of fear than he had known earlier. It was a feeling for his own smallness and weakness as a human being, compared to the lofty divine being that overcame him when he allowed the second saying of Christ to live in his soul. Quote, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Close quote, Matthew 5.48. These two sayings should live in the soul of every esotericist. Esotericists should live according to two principles, not one. First of all, they should enkindle in their soul complete devotion to the divine. In this way, consciousness is developed. Not that what one does is good, but that one must constantly strive to become more perfect. We should look to the person in our soul who is becoming, evolving. God lives in the one who is evolving. If we advance so far that we act in a good and noble way, then it is God in us who is good. The God who allows us to act in a good and noble way is our archetype himself who created us. We must become a perfect reflection of this archetype. There is a selfish motive in everything that we do, be it ever so hidden. We need to understand that we cannot even be selfless. It is the karma of the world that causes us to act egotistically. World karma, however, is God. 
everything that God is and does as the good is better than we can do ourselves. And an esotericist should say to him or herself, if I perform an action that I have made into a duty for myself, if I perform it to the best of my ability in my own way that I feel in myself, and if I perform it so that I say to myself that the divine working in me performs this act, that I am only the instrument for this divine being working in me, then the esotericist is developing toward the second principle. His or her higher self is revealed in his or her striving toward perfection. There are three revelations of the higher self. First, through dreams. Secondly, through intuition. Third, through meditation. If esotericists have lived for a long time, in their meditations, if they have attempted again and again in their thoughts, words and deeds to live following the first principle just characterized, if they have attempted again and again to take up their striving to be good, then a time will come when it becomes clear to them. If I were to set outside myself all the joy, all the suffering that I have experienced until now, then it would be as if it surrounded me from outside, as spiritual soul substance. I no longer live in this which I have set outside myself. I will no longer be touched by the waves of pain and joy. Then the pupils must learn to stand firmly in the center of their existence by living completely in the power of the mantra Ex Deo Nasimur. Thus, pupils divide their humanity into the higher self, the second principle of the I, which is not in us, that is, cannot be found in us merely by sitting and brooding, but rather can only be reached by growing above and beyond ourselves. We stimulate a power within us through exercises that otherwise works in us more as the power of memory and awakens ideas, feelings, and sensations that earlier were stimulated by the things and events of the outer world that is now gone. The pupils become acquainted with this power as a power alone. They learn to organize it up into the brain so that they can finally grow toward the higher self that hovers above us. There's a diagram. Pupils now live in this newly achieved power. Everything external, be it suffering, be it joy, now presents itself as outside this, their center. Over and against all outer influences, they stand firmly enclosed within themselves. They feel themselves to be free within and free from everything external. Pupils feel something else still. They had previously learned the teaching of karma. Now they know that they are subject to the necessary workings of karma. They experience in this newly acquired power the higher self that gave them existence through birth.
and they understand how what is lived out in the outer world in their destiny must have been brought about by the necessary working of karmic necessity. This gives them a certain satisfaction with respect to pain and suffering. They have equanimity with respect to everything. When pupils have come far enough in their development, they come to contemplation and thereby to consummatio of the higher self. And now spiritual eyes and ears are organized in them and begin to function when they continue to devote themselves to their exercises with patience, endurance and concentration. They learn to see the light world of spiritual beings and the will-being that sounds forth to them from the harmony of the spheres, perceptible to their opened spiritual ears. And they know they cannot have this experience of the spiritual world through the meditation of their physical organism. In the experience of the pentagram, they feel themselves placed into the great entirety of the etheric spiritual world. This whole drawing, this occult script, works to awaken the soul and free the spirit. Again and again pupils should place it before the eyes of their soul, and they will experience how new forces thereby always awaken in their soul. We have seen how Parsifal, who stood in solitude before Titurel, had experiences that find their expression in this occult script. All Christian wisdom is expressed in it, the entire Christian mystery that is entangled with the Holy Grail. The mystery wisdom of pre-Christian times was like a hothouse plant that was revealed only to individual people who were mature enough. What the rest of humankind received was the doctrine of faith of the various religions. The wisdom of the Grail, however, Christian wisdom, is a mystery that was revealed as knowledge to all, but as mere doctrine of faith to none. All pupils of Western esotericism are Parsifals. Lohengrin is a son of Parsifal. He is a personality who does not come to full expression in his incarnation. The swan is an expression for higher individuality who shines over him. Lohengrin unites with Elsa, the human soul. She does not ask him where he comes from. She does not brood over his being. She accepts him and receives his gifts with gratitude and humility until, goaded on from outside by evil talk that he was not of noble lineage, she asks about it. Then Lohengrin must withdraw from her. He disappears into the spiritual world. The main feeling that pupils should carry and nurture within themselves is gratitude for what the spiritual world gives them as gifts in this incarnation. They should not search and try to interpret these gifts with ordinary earthly understanding. For this causes the higher self to withdraw from the soul. A profound warning lies in the destiny of Elsa, 
We should not allow any external thoughts, any feelings or sensations from the outer world into the sanctuary of our meditations and concentration. Otherwise the source of power through which we achieve the growing up and out of our human powers to our higher self is not stimulated. We cannot find our higher self. It withdraws from us again and again. In contemplation, closed off from all outer impressions, alone in the deepest stillness and immersion, resting in the deepest solitude, we should observe the projection of the spiritual world with its working into us. We should let it work in us quietly and purely, in order that we thus gradually come to know the truth and become an instrument for the deeds of spiritual beings. End of record A, record B. As Parsifal, in his solitude, experienced all these feelings and sensations, two new feelings overcame him. The first was a compression of his whole being, and from this developed a concentrated feeling of shame. When one has ascended to the stage of Parsifal and knows oneself to be pure and pious, then one believes oneself to be a good person. Then the saying from Christ Jesus, the Master of Masters, occurred to Parsifal, quote, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Close quote. A last remnant of arrogance was in his feeling of shame. We also who strive for esoteric truth should take in and assimilate this fundamental principle very deeply. For when we penetrate deeper into esoteric life, we believe we are becoming better than the other people around us. If we permeate ourselves with this fundamental principle, no one is good but God alone, then it is only right if we add another alongside it. Become perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Neither one of these two fundamental principles is sufficient by itself. Rather, both are necessary in order to be able to stand next to Christ as Parsifal believed himself able to stand next to him. The second feeling that overcame him was one he had believed himself to have overcome long before, and that was concentrated fear. Now he knew that he had not become similar to Christ. That was the after-effect of the two great pictures that Titorel had shown him, from the lily to the rose cross. It is an illusion to think that the human being could be good. Only God is good. However, the ideal we are to strive for is not to perfect ourselves in solitude far from other people, but rather to be a human being among other humans to place ourselves in the center of the universe and to have the strength to let the Spirit work upon ourselves, the Spirit of whom it is said that through Him all things are made, and so forth. Giving oneself in devotion cannot be learned until one has formed something within oneself. Wanting to sacrifice oneself without first wanting to possess something within oneself means to lose oneself in the universe and therefore become useless. Those are the dangers of mystical immersion. 
also an intellect that does not want to sacrifice itself because it does want does not want to lose itself must first have built up something within and that can only be achieved in the world so that it becomes all-sided and only then can it be sacrificed when we perform our exercises with the greatest reverence and a feeling for the sacredness of their cosmic foundations then we will enter cosmic regions with our soul if we immerse ourselves intensely in an object and if in doing so we think on the first rising line see the drawing then we experience a power that coming from a still higher world corresponds to the power to think that leads creation to its end. We lose our feeling of a separate existence and become a part of this power. That is the first exercise. And let us consider the second exercise in which we take ourselves in hand. Then the first power that leads to a loss of self is transformed into a guiding of oneself which represents the second power. The third exercise, in which joy and pain are no longer felt within us, but rather should be felt outside us, represents the third great connecting power, through which it has become possible for the cosmos, that sun, moon and earth, out of the entirety, become a trinity, so that they can allow their forces to flow from the periphery, the forces that at first come from within, out of a center. Those are the three great powers, attraction, repulsion, and encircling. When joy and suffering, sympathy and antipathy no longer play a role in our judgment, then we will not lose ourselves in things. They will not enclose us, but they will encircle us, and we ourselves will stand like a solid, immovable point there within, and will understand things as they are. Then, in this way, such a power will come to us that it will seem to us that we are supported under our arms and led on further. Then, by means of our thus maintained equanimity, we will no longer allow our judgment to be determined by what is around us externally but rather we will recognize the wisdom in everything, which will then rise up out of our hearts, raising us above mere intellect. And through this wisdom we will ascend to the point where the harmony of the spheres comes to meet us, and the great beings of creation, the lofty hierarchies, will be revealed. Then, as from a point, perfect wisdom and perfect love will stream to us from those heights and the light of the heights will illuminate us. This figure, see page 453, is the symbol of the ascent in esoteric life. It cannot be grasped with the intellect. It must be felt as a picture. Only those who can set aside all intellectual understanding will be in a position still to place the five points of power in the figure. These are found between the wings and the triangle, in the first lower pair of wings and in the arrow above. The pentagram results from these points. The last paragraph, as found 
in another set of notes. If Now if we imagine five points between these various forms and figures and connect them with lines, then we see the human being placed in a significant figure in this entire great context of the universe. If we place this entire form before our soul, it may appear somewhat strange, but by feeling its significance and the connections and relationships at its foundation, it works to awaken the pupil. And then we must always imagine how the seed of our body lie in the spirit, how it was gradually developed, and how now the seed of the spirit again lies in the body. Quote, in the spirit lay the seed of my body, close quote. And that is the end of that esoteric lesson. There are two pages of diagrams. The next esoteric lesson was given in Berlin on October 26, 1909, manuscript from Matilda Scholl and Anonymous. Before we begin our observations, I would like to direct a few earnest words to you concerning esoteric lessons. An esotericist should especially guard him or herself from thoughtless conversation. Esotericists should not speak about what they learn in the school, should not speak about it altogether. Small acts of thoughtlessness often have extensive repercussions. If, for example, one mentions in the presence of a third person that one is attending an esoteric lesson that is not attended by the third person, then one should not take it lightly and think that it does not matter. For something like this matters a great deal and can directly threaten the existence of the school, and the esotericist would have to attribute it to him or herself should this esoteric school once have to stop. Now we want to speak about our meditations. Esotericists must realize that as a result of joining such a school, events will approach them from outside, concerning which they could ask themselves, quote, Would this have happened to me had I not become an esotericist? Close quote. Esotericists should make it their duty to observe life and themselves most intimately. The fact that they have entered upon this path should stand at the center of their lives, for it is a small center of spiritual life and radiates, more or less unconsciously, into their surroundings and brings about the events that approach them. By means of higher development, pupils leave, if only for a brief period of time during the day, their lower self behind, the lower self with which they stand in ordinary life, through which they are connected to the outer world. During meditation it is left to itself. Its guardian is withdrawn, so to speak. The one who otherwise constantly controls it partially regulates the personal characteristics and partially suppresses them, or at least keeps them on a leash. Because this lower self is left to itself, if only for brief periods, character traits that we often thought we had overcome, whose suppression appeared very easy, crawl out from all sides of the hidden corners of our nature. In this way people can become, in a certain way, worse 
unless they constantly maintain the strictest control over themselves. Along with our meditations, certain exercises are given to us that should support us therein. As you know, everything proceeds in cycles, so too inner development. When our physical body is composed, excuse me, what our physical body is composed of now will in seven years be set outside it. It is the same with inner development. If, for example, we enter an esoteric school today, then only after seven years can all possible character traits that lie within us emerge, become prominent, and lead us into regression. This cannot happen if we are attentive enough to ourselves, our life, and our surroundings. The reasons why someone allows him or herself to be given meditations also play a role. With people who do not possess unconditional trust in their teacher, who carry a hidden feeling of opposition against him, for example, this feeling will break through and, the detri- and be detrimental to the effects of meditation. Above all, in their daily meditations, esotericists should bear in mind that their entire striving is to reach their higher self and to reflect upon what this higher self is. They should not think that they should bring something to this higher self. Rather, they should maintain an attitude of waiting. They should expect everything from it. It approaches pupils on their path in three ways. That is what is usual. The first time it happens, it is rushing past. And in order to notice it, one needs the attention that an esotericist should have for everything. This is, namely, in a dream, and here what one calls doubling of the I occurs, capital. For example, one has something planned or one is occupied by a problem. Then someone appears in a dream who advises one what to do to solve the problem, someone who is better, cleverer than oneself. One should pay attention to such dreams. In the course of development, it then happens that at a helpless moment, or in those moments when one has made a decision, one hears a quiet voice that, for example, advises one against this decision. Often it is a decision that one made following the best information and conscience. And if one then, nevertheless, follows this voice that advised against, then it can indeed happen that one has apparently done what is not right. However, in most cases, by far, one will immediately notice that one has done the right thing by following the voice. If one now practices attending to this voice, one will notice one has something inside that is greater than one's own reasoning capacity, cleverer than oneself. And the third moment when we encounter our higher self, is a very important sacred moment. That is during meditation. Only for brief moments are we united with it. But for this to happen, we must silence our lower nature entirely. We must extinguish everything that fills our life with antipathy and pettiness against the world. Altogether, pupils must constantly have the law of polarities in mind, 
during self-observation. That means that if they have a bad character trait and would like to destroy it, then they must also seek the counter-pole for this trait. It is certainly there. The presence of one character trait definitely also determines the counter-pole, even if one does not want to believe it, and this one must be and this one must be eliminated. Then the other one disappears with it. For example, if we feel fear in ourselves that we have hate as a counter-pole in us, even if ever so hidden, ever so cleverly disguised, and we must drive it out. Our higher self will only unite with us if such character traits are eliminated during moments of meditation. This union with the higher self is beautifully depicted in the saga of Lohengrin and Elsa. Lohengrin appears to order, excuse me, Lohengrin appears in order to rescue Elsa, to be united with her. Then mistrust is sowed in her soul, a negative character trait, and the higher self, Lohengrin, must withdraw into higher worlds. He can no longer unite with her. The end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Berlin on October 29, 1909. Manuscript from Matilda Scholl and Anonymous. The last time we spoke of how we should leave out of our meditations our thoughts and judgments connected to outer life. The gate that we pass through in meditation is like a narrow crack, and the thoughts that we take in that do not belong to meditation work like a fire that consumes what should be germinating within us. However, we do not therefore need to have a feeling of fear that all thoughts that push in on us during meditation, that pass through our brain from daily life, will have the effect mentioned. The thoughts that an esotericist should recognize as dangers are the seductive ones. We saw the last time that all our characteristic traits necessarily determine their counterpole within us that those who have fear in themselves must absolutely also harbor feelings of hate of some kind, which they can perhaps only find with very subtle observation. Like character traits, so also great truths in the world. Altogether, everything has its counterpole. We can see this in two statements from the greatest person who ever walked the earth. When Christ was once asked, how should a human being be, he answered, quote, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, close quote. He answered, quote, why do you call me perfect or good? No one is good, but God alone, close quote. How are we to understand this, that on the one hand we are told, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect? In the first instance, esotericists should bear in mind that they are striving for a high ideal, but that this ideal that they are always turning toward in devotion is a goal that can never be attained. And how is it that the personality who appears to us as the incarnation of what we would like to achieve says, Why do you call me good? God alone is perfect. 
we must consider that he speaks these words to us in his human form, and that as long as he dwells in it, he is speaking to us out of his humanity, that he would speak differently as Logos, not incarnated. If we now immerse ourselves in devotion with the proper feelings that are the most important for esotericists to develop, with these words as meditative content, and we should then suddenly hear something near us such as, quote, I have always told you that everything in the world has two sides, close quote, then that is a seductive thought. What does it want? It wants to draw us down into something trivial, away from what was given us as sacred meditative content, as truth from higher worlds. And here esotericists must be clear that of course this trivial thought, everything in the world has two sides, is also a truth, that it is an everyday truth that lets them feel superior since they have recognized it as true, since they have easily grasped it. Now it should also occur to them when they feel superior because of the thought that what it also gives them is something that could be the counterpole of this thought. The counterpole, the spiritual truth, given to us from spiritual worlds, is grasped by us emotionally, not intellectually. And our feelings carry our devotion into the heights and open a view into the creative workshops through what appears in our feelings in the words, From the One Evolves the Two. Meditating on such words awakens our creative powers. This quote, from the one, evolves the two, close quote, belongs to the deepest mysteries of numbers. One is the number of unity. And when a two joins the one, evolves out of the one, then we have revelation. Two is therefore the number of revelation. A simple arithmetic example gives us a demonstration. By taking an apple as one, we cut it in half and create a two. Those who meditatively read my chapter on the mysteries in the book titled Christianity as Mystical Fact will understand this truth out of themselves, and it can carry them to lofty cosmic truths. Thus an apparently simple sentence, from the one evolves the two, can become material for meditation. Those who write books suitable for meditative content have a great temptation to overcome. There are books about the highest truths that when read seem to send a frosty breeze, a certain reserve and dryness to the reader. And there are others that send the reader an emotional warmth, an overflowing glow. This latter kind of book is enchanting for many people, and for this reason many prefer it to the former. Therein lies the temptation for authors to write their own feelings, their own enthusiasm into the message in order to convey them to the reader. What effect does this have on readers? If a writer manages to hold back all his or her own feelings, to give only the pure, chaste, truthful thoughts, which are like a temple like the pure, chaste, mystery temples of the ancient world. Then, through the pure thoughts alone, 
something will light up in the pupils, be enkindled in them, and lead them to the heights of knowledge. However, the writings that are flooded with the emotions of the writer have an effect on the reader as consuming fire, and do not allow the reader's own sparks to rise up. In ancient times, in the ancient mystery centers, one could not give the pupil any instruction in this way. Pupils had to experience in pictures much of what is now imparted in words. One of the first pictures that was placed before them and upon which they were to meditate was the following. They were led into a dark room. Before them, the darkness was illuminated, and they saw a winged old man followed by the luminous blue figure of a woman. In this picture they saw something that they otherwise could never see on earth, and it was supposed to make clear to them the point in time after death when human beings follow their life from the end to the beginning. For this reason, what a human being usually is, before death, an old man, is represented but winged, to indicate that he had already passed through the gate of death, and the blue figure of a woman is the life that he follows from the end to the beginning, the end of that esoteric lesson. Next esoteric lesson was given in Munich on December 5th, 1909. Notes from Teresa Walter. We have often discussed here that our attitude is very important when we carry out our meditations, that the main thing is how we feel, how we think, and how we sense. Proper feeling and thinking give us the power that leads us into the spiritual world toward which we strive. Only through unshakable faith in this power can we raise ourselves to the portal of the spiritual world. In order to understand this power, we must consider how the esoteric schools in pre-Christian times compare to those that arose after the events of the introduction of Christianity and how they had to absorb the Christ power, how they were permeated by it. What is this difference? Here we must bring to the prologue of John's Gospel, excuse me, here we must bring in the prologue of John's Gospel for an answer. Quote, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos became flesh. Close quote. Through the fact that the Word became flesh, the teaching methods were also changed in esoteric schools. In pre-Christian times, the Word was not yet effective. The instruction took place in silence and in pictures the pupils received instructions from spiritual worlds in silence through their sight. In silence they were led into a dark room, and in this place of silence the picture appeared of a winged old man who followed a female form enveloped in a blue cloud veil and tried to unite with her. This picture appeared to seers in the spiritual worlds, when they observed an old man who had passed through the gates of death, who was living his life backward in Kamaloka, and strove after his higher self, the figure of a woman who was enveloped in a blue cloud veil, in order to unite with it 
and be raised into higher worlds toward Devakan. The color blue is always the color of striving toward something higher. When pupils meditated on this picture that represents something spiritual only, forces flowed from it to them, forces needed to get to these higher worlds. The rightly existing esoteric schools of the present age that have the Christ power as their center can now teach through the Word. Previously, communication with the divine spiritual world could only be brought about by mantras through the sound. Now, however, humans can open themselves to union with the Christ power through the meaning-filled Word within. The words that carry us up into spiritual worlds should be winged messengers. When pupils experience a sunrise, when they see the fiery ball appear and send out the first rays, then they feel that the sun is the bearer of physical warmth and releases warmth in them. They also know that there is something spiritual standing behind the sun. And when they concentrate on this, the external appearance of the sun will more and more disappear and a figure will appear before their spiritual eye, E-Y-E, that is recognized in all esoteric schools as the Christ Spirit. And this Christ Spirit fills the world with rays of love just as his outer garment floods the world with light. The bearers of light are Luciferic beings. The bearer of love is the Christ being and pupils must feel this love flooding over them when they experience the spectacle of a sunrise. This is expressed in the meditation, quote, in pure rays of light shines the divinity of the world, close quote. If pupils manage to close themselves off from all outer influences and sounds during their meditations, if they exclude, so to speak, their physical body, then, during meditation, they live only in their etheric body, astral body, and I. When we are asleep and have left our physical and etheric bodies, and are abiding with our I and astral body in higher worlds, then lofty spiritual beings move into the bodies we have left behind. Into the physical body enters an I, capital, of the spirits of personality, who created it on Saturn, into the etheric body and eye of the archangels. Our own eye then goes into the world of the spirits of personality, the astral body into that of the archangels. They live in these worlds unconsciously and we should go through this process consciously in our meditation. We should consciously enter these realms with our eye and our astral body and pull along our etheric body. Like a magnetic fluid, our meditation should pull us over into the spiritual world when we are in the proper frame of mind. But it is not the words themselves so much that are important, but rather that the proper meaning streams into them from the spiritual world, that they are filled with meaning by the Christ power. That is what is important. In esoteric lessons, words are chosen in such a way 
that their effect is impersonal as soon as they have left the lips of the teacher. For they are to provide a garment in which the logos, which streams through the world, can be clothed. The words must conform to these streams from the logos. Therefore they are expressed in a very specific way. For example, two expressions are chosen for many concepts because one alone does not convey the meaning of what is to be expressed. If, for example, one says, quote, spiritual divine life lives through the world, close quote, one does not sufficiently express the corresponding fact. On the other hand, if one says, quote, spiritual divine life lives and weaves through the world, close quote, then, between these two expressions, one has a picture of what is supposed to be said. Our way of expressing things is imprecise in many ways and reproduces incorrectly even what happens on the physical plane. When, for example, sprouting flowers and the greening of springtime is compared to a birth, or the withering of leaves and flowers in the fall is compared to a death, this is a form of expression that esotericists should not strive for for it does not give us what is in reality going on in nature. We can get a true concept of it if we compare this process in spring with our awakening in the morning, just as we return strengthened and refreshed to a new day, to our old joys and pains from a dark unconsciousness in which we were immersed. So too do the spiritual beings feel who draw forth the green plant mantle of the earth out of the dark, into which the plant seed was sunk into the womb of the earth. If we devote ourselves to these thoughts in the springtime, then we will come closer to the spirit of the earth and will penetrate in a proper way into the spiritual worlds. We will then notice the spirit behind all appearances of nature, When we see a bolt of lightning splitting a tree, we should think of the archangel behind the lightning. And with the rolling thunder, we should think of a spiritual being from the world of, quote, sounding light, close quote, of the spirits of personality. We do not achieve this through the universal figure of speech, quote, uniting with the divine within us, close quote. For we will not find the new, the higher within us. The worlds that we should consciously penetrate lie outside us. That is the end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson was given in Munich on December 7, 1909. Notes from Teresa Walter. When we enter into esoteric life through our meditation, we must resolve to move something into the center of our lives, something new, that until now was not present, but must now become the most important point. The success of our exercises will depend upon the intensity of this resolve. We could think of the esoteric life in such a way that the exercises we receive are an addition to daily life, that we do them as we would any other ordinary work. We would then notice, however, that the progress we make is not exactly significant. The resolve that 
esotericists should make, consists in their undertaking to bring everything that meets them in ordinary life into a relationship with their esoteric life, truly to feel this esoteric life as the center from which they conduct the rest of their lives, from which something is constantly flowing into ordinary life. What are we then to achieve with our meditations? If we perform them in the right way, we are to develop a strong power, a power that uses the words of meditation as an instrument with which we gradually create spiritual organs in our astral body. Organs with which we can perceive the spiritual world surrounding us. The impressions that we make into the mass of our astral body become enduring impressions only gradually. For we can compare our astral body with an elastic mass that receives impressions but after a while returns to its earlier shape. We make these impressions during sleep while the eye and the astral body have left the physical and etheric bodies. The more strongly and intensively we devote ourselves to our meditations, the more intense the impressions in our astral body become until they finally become enduring and organs, which we call lotus blossoms, develop from them. This process is described in the verse that comes from the Masters of Wisdom and Harmony of Feelings. Quote, In the spirit lay the seed of my body. Close quote. However, we can use these organs only when they have become so strong that they can press into the etheric body from the astral body. Only when the etheric body has received an impression do the doors open for us before which the cherub with the flaming sword stands. We have heard that our physical and etheric bodies could not exist for a second without the eye and the astral body and that, therefore, in that moment when these two leave us when we fall asleep, beings of a higher sort enter our physical and etheric bodies, beings that are of the same nature as our eye and astral body, but much loftier. An archangel replaces our astral body, a spirit of personality, our eye. We now meet these lofty beings, when we have developed our astral organs. And this powerful event that is so sacred to us esotericism calls, quote, encounter with the higher self, close quote. We should look forward to this event with feelings of deepest devotion, permeated most intensely by its holiness. If we do not do our meditations with this attitude of genuine, true humility, then the spiritual world will not be revealed to us in its true form. But all kinds of fantastic forms will appear to us, and the moral result for us will be a destructive arrogance. It is a blessing for us that the world into which we would like to penetrate, when prepared by a school whose existence is legitimate, 
is closed to us by the cherub with the fiery sword as long as we are not sufficiently prepared. The guardian of paradise stands exactly at the place where we glide over into deep sleep, where we lose consciousness. Were we not to lose consciousness, then we would see him. But a glance into the world of the archangels would destroy us because we are not a match for them. Now, why is the archangel that covers our astral body called our higher self? Why do we strive for union with him? Here we must touch upon a secret that concerns the human being. The way in which we see humans here on earth, in their present constitution, is actually a maya. They are not at all complete. During ancient Lemurian times, the earth was once so depopulated, so desolated, that only a single pair of humans were strong enough to ensoul the animalistic forms remained on it. The other humans had distributed themselves on the other planets. And for this reason, present-day humanity essentially descended from this primal pair. Here, too, the report from the Bible of Adam and Eve is correct although it is presented in the form of an allegorical story. These first human beings were overcome by Lucifer, who permeated their astral body with his influence. Later, through this Luciferic influence, Aramonic influence became possible, along with everything that helped the human being to live life in the physical, sensible realm. Thus, the spiritual behind matter increasingly disappeared and matter became an impenetrable cover. If human beings had remained only under the influence of those divine spiritual beings who had created them, then they would not have become free, but would always have been able to recognize the spirit shining through matter. Now these guiding powers wanted to prevent the danger that the entire etheric body would also be permeated by luciferic influences. For this reason they separated part of the etheric body of Adam and kept it back in the spiritual world. And this etheric body is the higher self, with which we are again to be united. For only when we are united with this higher self are we a whole human being. An esotericist should say, quote, Over there, this higher self that actually belongs to me awaits me in order to unite again with me. And in my meditation, I should strive toward him with the utmost intensity. I should form myself into a chalice that can receive this higher self. Close quote. Paul, who was an initiate in these matters, used an entirely correct expression when he spoke of the old and the new Adam. This union of the etheric body that remained behind with a human being occurred for the first time back when Jesus of Nazareth was born, concerning whom Luke's Gospel reports. This boy, Jesus, received the etheric body of Adam. The lofty, guiding, creating beings at that time had withheld from the human being the capacity for individual thought and individual language with this portion of the etheric body, 
Of course, human beings think. But it is not a thinking in which they individually produce, but which they take from the divine substance of thinking that flows through the world. Furthermore, human beings do not have an individual language. Rather, lofty spiritual beings gave a common language to groups of people. They are to acquire their own thinking, their own language, only by uniting again with their higher etheric body. Since the capacity for language lies in this etheric body, the legend is understandable. It tells us that the boy Jesus did not need to learn the language, but rather spoke with his mother after his birth in a language that she understood. Through the fact that this etheric body of Adam for the first time was united with a physical human body, it became subject to the law that every spiritual thing that descends into matter is subject to the law of number, of duplication. As a seed is laid in the earth that brings forth ears with many seeds, so too the body of Jesus was the womb of the earth for the etheric body of Adam, the transit point for duplication. And these reproduced etheric bodies are what are waiting for us. And when we are immersed in our meditation so that our entire outer life disappears for us, so that we do not hear or see, then we will have achieved the feeling as though we had died in order to live again united with our higher self. Therefore the cross is the symbol for resurrection to this new life for newer esoteric schools whose existence is legitimate. It is not a birth that is taken as the starting point for this life, but rather a death, the death of Christ on the cross of Golgotha. And this life has as its symbol the sacred blood that flowed away. For this reason we have the dead plant, the desiccated wood, and upon it sprouting the living red roses united in the rose cross. And in our meditations we should feel that we are born out of God, as it is stated in our main guiding verse, which should be the guiding verse of our esoteric life, and that we die in Christ by allowing the power of our meditation to become a light in us that shines into higher worlds. And our higher self comes toward this warmth, these rays. In this way it is united with us as the Holy Spirit in which we resurrect. Ex Deo nasimur, in Christo morimur, per spiritum sanctum revivissimus. The end of that esoteric lesson. The next esoteric lesson, which is the last esoteric lesson given in 1909 that is recorded, and then there is a short lecture, actually probably given around 1904, that I'm going to include in this reading. So the last esoteric lesson of 1909 was given in Berlin, on December 22, 1909, this is very short, notes from Paula Stritzig. Awaken theosophical feeling in the exercises. Equanimity, not indifference. What has already been acquired does not have value. Rather, acquisition through spiritual training has value. Immersion in theosophical teachings altogether 
is the only thing that helps us out of sensory life for the opening of the spiritual life. Feel our higher self not as within us, but rather outside of us. Receive our development as grace. Life after death clears away hindrances of karma if we resolve to make good on all our individual errors. Pupils of spiritual science should already realize this in earthly life. Immersion in the death of Christ on Golgotha, not as death, but rather as the victory of life. Ex Deonasimur in Christo Morimur, per Spiritum Sanctum Revivissimus. The end of that esoteric lesson. And now an appendix, an internal lecture, no location or date given, presumably Berlin 1904, concerning nutrition and inner development. Our present age stands under the banner of reform. Everywhere reform movements, efforts at reform. Dissatisfied with existing traditions and with their experiences, people are seeking to form something new and to find salvation in, any, everything else, in anything else. And this must be so. For everything in the universe, in the great all, all cultures, the individual, everything, everything is changing, is evolving. There is no standing still. How often are the ideas of individual reformers great and mighty, yet how distorted and exaggerated they are by the great masses. Let us consider one of our most outstanding reform movements. There is a movement that was not noticeable in any cultural epoch as yet, which has an alienating effect on many. It is the woman's movement. The drive to participate in the great tasks of culture and the social life drives women to struggle for valuation and rights equal to those of men. The conditions of contemporary civilization also drive women to do this. They no longer want to reign in small circles, chained to unsatisfying circumstances, or standing alone in the world without supporting work, without purpose in life. No, they want to be co-workers in the cultural life, standing on their own feet with the same rights as men. The wonderful ideal of a housewife that Schiller shows us so beautifully in his, in quotes, bell, quote, and within the virtuous housewife holds sway, close quote, is simply no longer an ideal for the great majority of women in our world. But how misunderstood and extreme is this drive for independence and freedom, because women have not yet understood that independence in professional life by itself does not make a woman inwardly free and independent, or that arbitrary actions do not belong to the sphere of freedom, but rather that we, above all, must become independent and free within, that only by transforming our entire soul life, by ennobling and purifying our character, do we become independent free beings. The external circumstances can be whatever they like, they will not have a large influence. Achieving inner independence then also gives women the right to outer freedom and independence, 
and then they can be co-workers with men, but not their rivals. The path to reach this true inner independence only spiritual science can show us. All other striving for freedom does not lead to a lofty goal. Let us consider another area, the methods of natural healing. It has been discovered that many of the diseases of the current age are due to our present-day cultural life. The battle for existence hardly allows people any rest, much less healing. Because our ancestors lived entirely in nature, in the fresh air, unfettered by clothing, with simple nourishment, it is believed that those things were decisive for their health. And because medical science in many cases no longer finds answers, it is believed that a return to nature, a life in nature, is the healthiest. Earth, water, air and warmth are taken and applied in all conceivable cases. However, in doing this, it is not considered that the human being is an individual being who no longer has a relationship to all elements. For many, sunbathing is not at all appropriate. For others, water cures can be very injurious. If health is one day to come to people from the spiritual scientific point of view, then we must proceed individually. Then, for healing, people will get what is beneficial to their inner nature, their temperament, their entire character, the spiritual constitution. Humans are constantly connected, most intimately, with eternal laws. And only following these laws can a complete healing, complete harmony with their physical and psychic organism be brought about. For humans, there is no back to nature in the sense that they believe nature to be the highest, but rather, quote, through nature to the spirit, close quote. Vegetarianism usually goes hand in hand with natural methods of healing. People are convinced that there is something contained in animal nourishment that does not foster health. They believe that it is more beneficial to eat pure plant foods, and they go so far as to consider milk and cheese prepared from it as unsuitable for nourishment. Plant products are taken from everywhere in order to get variety and a full replacement for meat. This way of living is very easy on the stomach, but it is another question whether everyone can go through with it in the long run. Because living as a vegetarian without spiritual striving leads to illness. It is said that vegetarianism was known in Greek in Greece centuries before Christ, and that the great wise men of antiquity, man of antiquity Pythagoras, was the founder of vegetarianism. Here we must ask, who was Pythagoras, and why then did he live as a vegetarian? And thus we come to the secret schools, the mysteries. At all times, and scattered all over the world from time immemorial, there have been mystery schools whose members endeavor through strict self-discipline, through diligent study, through meditation, to teach the hidden being of the world behind the veil of the transitory. In Greece it was Pythagoras in particular, one of the great initiates, who worked in this way. 
He had gathered pupils whom he led into the mysteries through previous strict trials. At the same time, however, strict dietary rules were issued. Intoxicating beverages were entirely forbidden. So too the enjoyment especially of meat and legumes was strictly prohibited. Also in later times and in all mystery schools, rules were given specifying the lifestyle of the pupils. For the pupils were supposed to choose their food according to the principles of spiritual knowledge. They must know that the forces of certain spiritual beings lie in the food that they eat. And if people want to become masters of their organism, they must consciously choose their nourishment. When we understand which beings are attracted by this or that nourishment, then we also understand the significance of that nourishment. In earlier ages, in the great religious communities, for example in the Jewish and the Catholic religions, the effects of various foods were known. Someone who acted against the rules was punished with exclusion from the community. Also in Brahmanism, the time between Christmas and Easter was dedicated to Vishnu. Those who called themselves his servants celebrated this time through abstention, for example from all legumes, oil, salt, meat, and intoxicating beverages. In those days people still had a vivid feeling for the connections between the macrocosm and the microcosm, and every adult member of the community was required to make him or herself more receptive for certain spiritual forces at very specific times, so that he or she could celebrate with all of nature a festival of rebirth and resurrection. It was this time after Christmas and before Easter. Now we want to consider what nutrition really is. Almost no subject is as interesting as nutrition, for the demands that the present age puts upon the individual make it necessary to be well fed. We give our body nourishing and sustaining forces through the food we eat. According to the standpoint of science, nourishment is a source of energy. But esoteric science says that the trinity is manifested in all of nature. Everything consists of form, life and consciousness. Everything in nature is alive and spiritualized. We take our nourishment from the animal and plant kingdoms. Animals have their physical, etheric and astral bodies in the physical world. The group, capital I, of animals is on the astral plane. When an animal is dead, the effect of the animal nature is not yet erased, for the principle continues to work after the death of the animal. It is the same with plants. A plant has its physical and its etheric body in the physical world, its astral body is in the astral world, the eye of the plant is in Devakan. The principle that works in the plant will still be effective after the plant has been prepared. For the effects of nutrition reach not only into the physical and life body, but also to the other members of human being. And now we want to talk about nutrition in connection with our spiritual striving. Certainly the meditation and concentration exercises will be the main thing, 
But it is not unimportant how a striving person is fed when the transformation of the astral body begins. Above all, it is important to avoid alcohol in any form. Even sweet candies filled with alcohol have a very destructive effect. Alcohol and spiritual exercises lead to the worst paths. From the point of view of science, the detrimental influence of alcohol on the functioning of the brain has already been sown. How much more should people whose entire striving is directed toward the spirit refrain from a pleasure that completely excludes knowledge of the spirit? The intake of meat and fish is not advisable. In meat we also enjoy the entire passion of the animal, and with fish we also enjoy all of world kama, K-A-M-A. Mushrooms are uncommonly injurious. They contain hindering moon forces, and everything that has come into being on the moon signifies rigidification. So too legumes are not advisable because of their great nitrogen content. Nitrogen pollutes the etheric body. We now want to take some of the coarsest, lower characteristics and connect them to various foods. If someone possesses great independence and strongly inclines toward egotism, then he or she should eat little concentrated sugar, for sugar fosters independence and self-reliance. If, however, someone is without inner or outer stability and always believes he or she needs to lean on others for support, then he or she should eat lots of sugar in order to become more independent. If someone is ruled by anger, then he or she should not enjoy very many spices in food, especially salt and pepper. Those who are predisposed to comfort and lethargy should especially avoid nitrogenous foods, which pollute the etheric body. They should rather choose vegetables and fruits for food. Those, however, who wish to venture upon the problem of mastering sexual passion, the passion that demeans the human being below the level of the animal when practiced in its lowest forms, yet which, when transformed, brings humans closest to their divinity, they should eat as little protein as possible. Excessive enjoyment of protein substance allows reproductive substances to get the upper hand, and this makes mastery of sexual passions very difficult. For those who incline toward envy, ill-will and treachery, cucumbers, squash and all the climbing plants are not beneficial. Even when eating fruits one must be careful. People who tend toward emotional excess should not eat melons. The sweet, intoxicating fragrance of these fruits darkens all clear rational consciousness. An excessive enjoyment of apples is not advantageous for everyone. In some people it intensifies a domineering nature and often leads to coarseness and brutality. Because of their high iron content, cherries and strawberries are not good for everyone. Bananas, dates, and figs are more beneficial. 
Also, with nuts we can make a certain selection. If we want to undergo a training of our thinking, we need above all a well-formed, healthy brain. But parents in the present age seldom provide their children with such well-formed brains. Then assistance is required in order to strengthen the brain. And here above all it is the hazelnut that provides all the substance needed for forming the brain. All other kinds of nuts are less valuable. Peanuts, a legume actually, are to be avoided altogether. With respect to fats, we should give preference to butter made from milk. Hazelnut butter is also advisable. Now we come to the stimulants, coffee and tea. Coffee supports logical thinking. But we will not become logically thinking people from coffee alone. Far more is required. And with people in whom the intellectual principle does not predominate, as is frequently the case with women, an excessive intake of coffee can lead to hysteria. Tea produces good insights. However, we can also receive good insights through special exercises. During a time of spiritual striving, it is especially important to live a very moderate life. Quote, moderation purifies our feelings, awakens abilities, cheers the soul, and strengthens our memory. The earthly burden of our soul is almost removed, and thus our soul enjoys a higher freedom, close quote, says an old wise man. If we were to eat large amounts, and too often, we would be unable to produce any constructive thoughts. For if digestion claims very much of our forces, then none remains for the capacity to think. Precisely those people who have filled the world with the products of their mind lived with very little food. Schiller, Shakespeare, and many of our poets whom we thank today for their wonderful works have worked through difficult privation. The mind is never so clear as after a long fast. Also in the history of religious orders and in the biographies of the saints, we find numerous examples of the effects of temperate life. The greatest saints lived only on fruits, bread and water, and there is no known miracle-working saint who set spiritual powers into motion during an opulent meal. Also in antiquity, all the great wise persons were famous for their temperance. Now when we progress in our spiritual striving, when the laws of the true and good increasingly flow into the eye, when the rays of light from the great spiritual sun increasingly flood and illuminate the eye, capital, in both cases, then the conscious transformation of the life or etheric body begins. The eternal being of the human being, that which goes from incarnation to incarnation, lives in each new incarnation in such a way that it calls forth a certain interaction of the four members, physical, etheric, astral, and I, of human nature. And the temperament of a human being arises out of the interaction between these four members. According to how one or the other of these four members predominates, a human being meets us with this or that temperament. 
whether the forces of one or the other dominate and have predominance over the others, upon this the actual tone of human nature depends, that which we call the actual nuance of the temperament. Four main temperaments are distinguished, the choleric, sanguine, phlegmatic, and melancholic temperaments. These are mixed in individual human beings in manifold ways, so that we can only speak of one or the other predominating. When we work on ourselves, then we bring harmony, order, and evenness to these temperaments. Certainly, in working on the temperaments, spiritual exercises will be most important. Nevertheless, it is not unimportant how we are nourished. If the physical principle predominates, then this is often a hindrance for development. However, we must be master of our physical body if we are to use it. If we are not able to make complete use of our physical body, so that the other members experience a hindrance, then disharmony arises between the physical body and the other members. When melancholics work on themselves, they should eat only foods that grow near the sun, that flourish far from the earth, and ripen in the full power of the sun, and that would be fruit. Just as a person is warmed and illuminated in spiritual exercises, by the spiritual sun, so too in the physical realm the solidifying and rigidifying elements in a melancholic person should be permeated and penetrated by the forces of the sun that are contained in the fruit. In phlegmatics, the etheric body predominates, which keeps the individual functions in balance. Here, the inner life is produced and supports itself, and people prefer to live in this inner comfort so that they feel exceedingly comfortable when everything is in order in their organism, and they are not at all inclined to direct their inner interest, their inner interest outward, or even to develop a strong will. Such people should take in food that does not grow under the earth, especially not foods whose development often takes two years until they come to the surface. For example, Phlegmatics should not eat black salsify. The seeds of this plant take so long until they open to the outer forces, and phlegmatics must also work through a great deal until they can actively participate in the outer world. The principle of this plant would only increase their inner sense of well-being. Sanguines in whom the astral body predominates who are often interested in an object but soon drop it again, who display quick enthusiasm for something but soon move on to something else, should choose root vegetables to eat. We could almost say that sanguines should even be tied to the physical by their nourishment, otherwise their easy mobility could lead them too far. If the eye predominates, If the I with its forces is especially active and rules the other members of human nature, then the choleric temperament comes into being. Above all, cholerics must avoid spicy and stimulating foods. All stimulating, strongly spiced foods are most injurious. One would like to assume that a person's temperament no longer plays a role in higher development 
and that nourishment no longer has any influence. At the stage of the master, that is certainly the case, for a master no longer needs any solid nourishment. Neither will temperament exert an influence or rule any longer. But a master would use the temperaments to be active in the physical world. Masters would use their choleric temperament to carry out their magical deeds. They would let the events and situations of the physical world pass over them as sanguine. They would relate to the pleasures of life as a phlegmatic, and they would brood over their spiritual knowledge and experiences as a melancholic. Arrival at this stage will require yet a little time. We should try to bring our whole life into harmony with our spiritual striving. We should live according to our ideals, not just for a little while during the day, but rather appoint our activities accordingly, choose our pleasures accordingly, and even regulate our nourishment. We should strive to become an harmonious human being, solid and self-reliant, in order to be active in life to the best of our abilities. Life bestows nothing upon us. Everything must be achieved. Goethe's beautiful words belong here. Only earnest willing and steadfast striving will lead you to the goal. Happiness is no mere accident, and life gives back to you only what you gave to it. That is the end of this appendix lecture, the end of the book from the Esoteric School, Esoteric Lessons, 1904-1909, Collected Works, number 266, volume 1 of three volumes, translated by James H. Hines.